Hello, Hikma Collective listeners. Uh, my name is Erica Makalak, founder of Hikma, and we are pleased to launch a quick mini season where we are sharing collaborations we've done with public scholars working on some really interesting initiatives. Uh, in this episode, you'll hear a conversation between myself and Dr. Brian Hunt at the University of British Columbia about his work on food webs and how relationships lead to better research and policy. Hope you enjoy. Microplastics can be found in every corner of our ecosystem. We find them in the air that we breathe, and in our soil, in our tires, in the clothing that we wear, in our waterways, and our oceans, and the food that we eat. We even find them in our own bodies. When staring down a challenge this complicated, how do we decide where to start? That's one of many things we're talking about in this episode of the podcast by the University of British Columbia Cluster for Microplastics Health and the Environment. Join us for a conversation with Brian Hunt about his research with herring in British Columbia's Denman Island, how microplastics can enter the food web, and why tackling microplastics requires a multi-directional approach. Brian also shares his story about how an obsession with fish and an opportunity to join an Antarctic voyage helped shape his career, and how he somewhat reluctantly joined the research effort to help tackle the microplastics problem. Take a listen. I'm Brian Hunt. I'm a uh, assistant professor at the Institute for Oceans and Fisheries, and I'm an ecosystem oceanographer, um, which means I study um, how the ocean works, how the pelagic ocean works, uh, which is the, the open open water part of our marine environment. Wonderful. Thanks, Brian, and thanks thanks so much for being here. Tell us how you became interested in this field. Um, well, to tell you the truth, I was trying to avoid becoming involved in microplastics because um, I felt that I was uh, very well subscribed already in my research, and I felt that microplastics was a—it's a huge topic, and it was going to be—it um, was going to require um, a serious uh, devotion to really become very familiar with it and to make an impact in that area. Um, but I was approached by some community members um, from the Salish Sea, the members of the Association for Denman Island Marine Stewards and the Comox Nation who were interested in the, who were concerned in the effect of, potential effect of microplastics on herring in the area around Denman Island, so mm. Bain Sound in particular. And this is a, a key spawning area for herring and the Salish Sea herring population is the healthiest population in British Columbia um, but they've really concentrated all of their spawning area now in this area around Denman Island um, when they used to spawn more um, diversely across the Salish Sea so it's, a, it's become an increasingly important area for them and herring are important because they underpin the food webs on the coast they're just really an essential um, organism, uh, essential elements in the food web. What is a food web? What does that mean? The food web is all of the connected organisms in an ecosystem and connected through consumption. So mm -hmm. it's a network of animals that are feeding on each other, basically. 
So is it like, I mean, when we were in school, we would learn about a food chain. Is a food web the same thing or is it different? A food chain and a food web are similar. Um, they're referring to the same thing. They're referring to connection pathways uh, between organisms um, through, through consumption. So let's say phytoplankton are the base of the food web in the marine environments, and then they're consumed by zooplankton, and the herring will eat the zooplankton, and Chinook salmon will eat the herring. But so that's a very simplified version, and, and it's a chain because it's one one organism eating the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, we have a web of animals out there. We have um, very diverse ecosystems, and so there there are multiple species that occupy any one uh, trophic level or level in the food web, and so they interact in very diverse ways, and it makes this web of interactions, and that's why we call it a food web. Okay, and and so why are herrings so critical to this one? Herring are critical because they link the zooplankton to the small zooplankton to uh, higher level predators. So mm-hmm. they're uh, they're herring are around. So they, I mean, they start off as tiny little eggs and larvae that are. 10 millimeters long, but they, they, when they're maturing, growing up, they end up in a range of 20 to 30 centimeters in size. And so that's a good size for consumption by lots of different animals. There will be birds and seals and sea lions and bigger fish like salmon, um, humpback whales will all feed on, on herring. And what the herring are doing is converting plankton into something that is edible by these bigger organisms. Um, those bigger organisms are not able to feed on the plankton because they're just too small. So they're the intermediaries. They, they make the plankton available to the rest of the food web. Okay. And so where do microplastics fit in here? Microplastics. Uh, so let's come back to this herring population in, in Denman Island, around Denman Island. So mm-hmm. the uh, herring, herring are plankton eaters. And they, so they're swimming around and they're eating the, all the small particles uh, in the ocean. Um, and that really starts from their larval stages when they're, you know, they're really eating tiny things to mm-hmm. when they're growing up, when they're eating things, they, they're eating plankton that might be the size of a, um, like a pea or a little bit bigger than that, perhaps. And so they are engaging with the part of the food web that um, interacts with microplastics. So microplastics are these tiny little plastic particles that are uh, less than five millimeters in size that are free drifting in the ocean. Uh, well, they can be in the sediments as well, but we're really, for the herring, we're really interested in what's free drifting. Mm-hmm. And and so the, either the, the, the zooplankton can be eating those plastics or the herring can be eating those plastics. And so it's a, it's a way for those plastics to enter the food web. And because there's so many animals that feed on herring, um, it's a, it becomes a pathway for plastics into the higher levels of the food chain. So up to those, those bigger animals like uh, Chinook salmon and whales and seabirds, etc. So this is, you know, this is very important then to have a, basically that the situation where herring are potential vectors for plastics um, transfer uh, mm-hmm. for transfer to the rest of the food web. But before we even getting to that point, plastics are important because of the potential effects that they have on herring. And so there was a particular concern raised around the area in Bain Sound because of the what's what's seen as a plastic problem with the shellfish industry. So there's a lot of shellfish farming there. There's a lot of plastic used in this industry. 
people observe plastic in the environment. There's cleanups, regular cleanups to, to remove that plastic. And so there was concern that the plastic from the shellfish industry was entering the food chain, getting into the water, and then uh, potentially a threat to herring. And this critical herring population that lives in this uh, particular environment or spawns in this environment around Denman Island um, in Bain Sound. So when you say that the plastic is used in the farming of the shellfish, does that mean that it's in the equipment that is used in the farming in some way? What does that look like? Yeah, there's, um, well, so the pla- in the shellfish industry, plastic is used for um, platforms for growing the shellfish. It could be in the ropes that uh, from which the shellfish are suspended in the water. Um, it's used in the transport of the shellfish. And so the plastic that is um, that is being used there, it's, it's large pieces of plastic. So this is not something that can actually be eaten by a herring, for instance, or a small organism, but the debris of this plastic is getting into the environment and then it can break down into smaller and smaller particles, which is what plastic tends to do. It gets smaller and smaller. And as it's getting smaller, it becomes accessible um, to other animals. So small animals can consume those plastics and that's how they can get into the food web. Hmm, really interesting. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. It's a helpful visual. Um, so could you walk us through uh, in the work that you're doing with the herring, sort of the step by step of the way that you approach your research? What is what is the question that you start with to begin the process? With this particular project, our plan, our objective was to know how much plastic there was in the environments where the herring live, um, particularly during the time when the 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 young herring, are, the larval and juvenile herring are growing up in this environment. So they use this environment for their very early life history. So for the first few months of their lives. And so we were interested in the, in the plastic that was in this environment that they would be coming into contact with and mm-hmm. then measuring how that, whether that plastic was being consumed either by the herring directly or by the animals that they feed on, the zooplankton. And that information helps us understand whether the plastic is actually reaching the herring and 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 that the next step would then be to figure out what the impact of that would be but our our purpose is really just to generate the baseline information of what's there and is it getting is it reaching herring Mm -hmm. and how do you do that what are the steps so to figure out what plastic is in the water we use quite um or we use oceanographic techniques so we collect water samples and then we filter these water samples to remove all the small particles using very fine mesh filters and then we also do net sampling to collect the zooplankton and larval herring and we can then collect out uh, particular zooplankton species individuals and the larval herring stages and we take all of these samples the water the zooplankton and the herring larvae back to the lab we basically have to dissolve away all of the organic matter um, that's in the sample and what's left behind is hard particles uh, some of which are plastic and some of which are uh, are not plastic at that stage we call them suspected microplastics and then we have to investigate all of those particles to figure out whether they actually are plastic or not and so you mentioned that you were looking for the quantity of plastic in the water at a particular time of year. Is there a reason that there would be more plastic in the water at one time of the year than another? The reason why we were looking 
for we're looking at plastic concentrations at a particular time of year was that uh, we were really focusing on the early life history of herring and herring spawn in february march and so which is about the time of the spring phytoplankton bloom so it's a important time of the year that's when like the the productive season in the ocean is starting so the herring mm. are you know they they're very strategic and when they do their spawning and so they, they they're laying the eggs so that their larvae are hatching out at a good time to eat to feed and and so we started something then because we wanted to know how those those larvae when they're hatching out um, how they're interacting with plastics so how much plastic is there how much they were ingesting and um, and also to some extent what the probability of ingestion was which means uh, what, one of the things that was uh, interesting from the study was was realizing that the if you look at the ratio of microplastic particles to natural particles that the herring larvae eat it's actually it's very low. There's a, there's a huge amount of natural material out there. So the chance of them actually eating a microplastic particle is, is pretty low, which was a, an interesting finding. Any idea why? Well, just because of the huge uh, number of, of small plankton that are out there. So sm uh, small phytoplankton, um, what we call microzooplankton, very small plankton particles. There are just so many of those compared to microplastics of the size that the larval herring might be eating that the, the chance of them encountering microplastics are, are very slim. So unless there's something about those microplastics that's very appealing to them, you know, that they, they see that and maybe it's got a color or a shape or something that they're, they're, they like, um, that's that which makes them select the microplastic as a food particle, it's uh, we, we would expect that they wouldn't have many microplastics in their stomachs. And that's what we noticed, in fact, with the larval herring. Yeah. So the, there's an extension to this. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so if you look at the size distribution of microplastics in the water, um, there's, there's a, a huge array of sizes. And we, we didn't measure the whole size range, but we, we measured a, a, good, a good size range, I'd say. And what we notice is that as the plastics get bigger, the number of particles, natural particles, so plankton of the same size decreases as well. So the, the ratio uh, gets, um, gets closer to one which means so that you start having more, more microplastics relative to natural particles. And so this means that if you are something that's feeding on bigger particles, your chance of eating a microplastic is much higher than if you're a small larval herring. So this is very interesting because the, the young of year herring, so um, the juvenile herring from the spawning in the February, which um, we sampled them in September when they were about 10 centimeters long, they had they had the highest uh, uh, concentration of microplastics in their stomachs. So there was uh, there was a higher chance of them eating plastics. We could estimate that, and this was demonstrated in what we actually saw in their stomachs. So the risk of microplastic consumption increased as the fish got larger which was quite hmm. an interesting finding. So what are some of the implications of that finding or what might they be? Um, well, the, the implications of this are that, firstly, that the, the risks are greater for larger fish, or at least the probability of consumption is higher for larger herring. And so if we're looking to understand the effects of plastic on herring, 
it might be more important to focus on these juvenile stages when they're eating more plastic than on the larval stages, which seem to have a very low risk of, of plastic consumption. And so if we were going to move to the next step of really trying to understand the effects of plastics, it would be good to concentrate on these juvenile stages rather than the larval stages. Is that the next step in the study? What, where do you go from here based on what you've built so far? <laughs> good question. <laughs> um, well, the, 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 the next, the logical next step would be to do some experiments, I think, with plastics to um, look at the, try and understand the potential effects of plastics on these juvenile herring. It, and one doesn't necessarily need to use juvenile herring as a model organism. One could use other animals in an experiment. But mm -hmm. I think that this is really an, an important gap is is yes, we can detect the uptake of plastic into the stomach of, a, of an animal. But uh, the gap then is what does that actually mean? Um, what does it mean for the health of the animal? And there is various bits of evidence out there that show, that show either no or sometimes slightly negative effects. Um, but I think that this needs to be done on an organism by organism basis. And um, it's it's quite a it's quite challenging to do because I think uh, one of the things that we've seen from experimental studies is that it's important to run them for quite a, a long time, not just have short term studies that are potentially not capturing the true effects of plastic consumption. And so this mm. is something that's very difficult to do. So can you say a little bit more about why running them for a long time is important? I think that running the experiments of plastics for a long time is important because the effects might be slow, um, quite, let's say, chronic effects, and slow to observe, slow to take effect. And so if we don't really run experiments for a long period of time, we, we could miss the significance of plastics to organism health. And so there's definitely a move, and certainly in some research groups, to run longer experiments. And experiments can be over a year in length really enable us to understand chronic effects, which could be through the physical effects of eating plastics, but could also be through the chemical constituents of plastics, um, which uh, I, and by that I'm, I'm particularly thinking of toxins that mm -hmm. might have long-term effects on organisms. So there, is, so there were two, yeah, we, we got to the end of the study and we had we identified two areas for next steps. One was trying to understand the effects of plastics on the fish themselves. And you could do this potentially with experimental studies. The other is to um, look at, part, at, at the effects of plastics or even the distribution of plastics that are smaller than microplastics. And so it, became, it becomes quite obvious when you're looking at the data that there is a lot going on in this. The smaller you go, the more microplastics you, you have. And Hmm. The when you're getting below microplastics, you get into a size category we call nanoplastics, and these are extremely difficult to both sample and measure. Probably more difficult to measure than than than, than actually collect. Um, but 
these these particles are so small that it's difficult to isolate them from a sample and then to make the um, chemical measurements to determine that they are indeed microplastics is quite challenging. So I think an important area of research is to develop methods to understand the distribution, occurrence and distribution of nanoplastics, not just mm -hmm. in the environment, but also in organism tissues, because there's some interesting recent results showing the uptake uh, of nanoplastics across the, the the stomach into the organism tissues so they can actually be found within the tissues this is really important because it means that there's the potential for plastics to be transferred um, up the food web in tissues mm -hmm. and to bioaccumulate as well so plastics are not just in the stomach which is ultimately going to be ingested it's going to be passed through the intestine and 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 ingested um, if the if tissue if the plastics are absorbed into the tissues, then they can be retained and that they can accumulate over time, and that is a much bigger problem then than something that's just passing through the intestine. These the nanoplastics are everywhere. Same with microplastics; they're in the atmosphere, they're in the soils, they're in freshwater and saltwater, and and so atmospheric plastics can just be breathed in and uh, get to your lungs and potentially be taken up that way. So it doesn't have to be just through the diet. So how, when you say atmospheric plastics, what exactly does that mean? That means small particles of plastics that are just floating around and being moved by, by the, by the air, air movements. Mm -hmm. So we, we know this is, a problem because when we when we uh, when we're doing research on plastics, we have to be incredibly careful about contamination. And so we put uh, we have methods to um, measure the plastics that are just in the environment wherever we're doing anything, whether we're sampling or in the lab processing samples. We have some some way to uh, measure what's what's uh, what's in the environment that could be contaminating our samples so that we can take that into account. This is very important. And so we know when we do this, so if we leave a Petri dish open on a bench top in a lab and we look at it later, it has microplastics in it. Um, mm. And these could be coming from your clothing, um, someone else's clothing, through the, through the air ducts. Um, there's lots of pathways for that. So, I mean, to recap, of course, we all know that Nano means very small, but um, microplastics are so tiny that they're in the air everywhere all the time. Are we breathing them in with every breath? Do we know? We are certainly, uh, microplastics are around in the air and we are breathing them in. That's for sure. Uh, how many are we breathing in? I'm not sure. Hmm. But they are there and they, they can be coming from many different sources. So just think of all the ways that we use plastic. You know? So there's lots of big plastic structures everywhere. There's car tires, there's synthetic clothing. Um, it's used in so many different ways. And so a lot of the plastics are large, but they all get degraded, um, break down over time and um, gets uh, become smaller and smaller. And they can then, they become microplastics and they can become airborne just through uh, the wind blowing. And so, you know, one of the sources could be a, a landfill site that has a lot of plastic in it. And, you know, that's, that, is, that is degrading over time. And um, the dust that is blown off the landfill site will have plastic in it. 
Um, but it doesn't have to be a landfill site. There's plastic all over the place. Um, so it's, uh, there are lots of sources. There are lots of sources and many points of entry, it sounds like, into the way that we talk about where microplastics exist in our ecosystem. How do you figure out where to start? So I think we are interested in the, on a, at, a, at the largest scale, we're interested in the life cycle of plastic. And, and so that means knowing where we introduce it to the system. And the system could be anything. It could be our city. It could be our, our farming. It could be, it could be anywhere. Um, but it could also be how we introduce it to a natural system. And so, um, um, you know, how it might get into a, a forested area that is, uh, for all intents and purposes, untouched by humans. Um, and the starting point is to, yeah, first to you know the entry point. So where are, we, where are we using plastic? And then to understand the movement of that plastic uh, sideways uh, and vertically uh, through the environment. And so to do that effectively, it's quite clear now that we need to be taking into account uh, what's in the atmosphere, what's in the, um, what's in the waterways, what's in the soils, and, um, and what is in the ocean. And what's important for me as a marine biologist is to know, firstly, what are the sources? So where's all this plastic coming from? And then um, how it is, uh, I'm, I'm immediately interested in how it affects the living things and the, and the, the living, breathing ecosystems that we depend on. Um, and then beyond that, where does it end up finally? Um, you know, what are the places where it actually ac accumulates? Hmm. Really interesting. Brian, I wonder if I could ask you to take as wide a lens as possible on your own work and tell us the story of how you became interested in marine biology. How has your research program evolved over time? Hmm. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I was, so I'm a, okay, let, let's, uh, I never, I never considered myself to be a marine biologist, um, but um, I guess that's what I am in some ways, <laughs> when I studied <laughs> biology in the ocean. <laughs> but uh, I would say that from my, my earliest recollection, uh, this was just something that I did. I, I was interested in biology in, in the ocean, uh, whether it was fish or plankton or seaweeds or rocky shores or estuaries or whatever it might be. The truth is that I'm fascinated by everything uh, in, our, in our environment. So all ecosystems are, are, are equally fascinating. But I never wanted to get into a career of uh, marine biology. That wasn't, my, that wasn't my, my goal, I would say. I was really excited. I, of all the things that I of all the things that exist in the natural world, I, I suppose I was most uh, fascinated by fish. Um, I, I would say almost obsessed with fish. And so my goal was to study fish. So the reason why I got into marine biology, um, and I, I distinctly remember telling people that I would never be a marine biologist, um, was that uh, someone offered me an opportunity to go to Antarctica when I had finished my undergrad degree as a as a research technician and I, um, on a research voyage, uh, oceanography voyage. And I thought, well, I'd never dreamed I'd go to the Antarctic, but this is an opportunity I couldn't pass up. So I, I went and I did that. And then I, I just totally loved this experience of doing research on the ocean. And so that totally changed my, 
my my career path, I would say. And so now mm-hmm. I do I do work in the pelagic ocean. So this, <clears throat> but I say that I do that, but I'm really interested in in much more than that. I'm interested in the connection between systems. And so I think that that maybe the override the overarching thing for me is that I'm. I really feel strongly bound to all ecosystems on Earth, and that I am fascinated by the connections between them all. So whether that is um, the atmosphere, land, freshwater, or oceans, uh, I just happen to be working in the oceans. But I'm always looking to the land. I'm looking to the water, the freshwater. I'm looking to the atmosphere and how it connects with my marine systems that I'm so fond of, and how it impacts them, and how they feed back to each other. They're, positive and negative feedbacks. And, um, and part of that system is humans. And, and so that's, that's part of, you know, what, what I research is this human interaction with uh, all of these different ecosystems and how, how they work, trying to figure out how they work so that we can do our best to um, sustain them and perhaps uh, get them back to a healthier state. Really interesting. It, it strikes me that you're talking about this vast interest, not just in a systems level approach, but in a multi-systems level approach and finding the points of connection between all of these things. But then at the same time, you're able to look at it in the context of something as specific as herring. Um, How do you navigate the complexity of the vast system that you're looking at? And how do you identify these specific points of connection to investigate? Well, it's it's helpful when you when you're trying to navigate a, a complex system. It's helpful to just have a starting point, and the starting point doesn't have to be the beginning or the end. Um, it can be it's just a it's a node in a network, and so hearing is that hearing is a node in a network that is firstly it's a food web, uh, but secondly and beyond that it's an ecosystem. Um, and the difference between the food web and the ecosystem is that. With the food web, we're just thinking about organism connections in terms of who eats whom. And from the ecosystem perspective, we're thinking about all of the non-biological factors that are affecting um, the food web, whether it's the nutrients that are available for plant growth or temperature effects or freshwater effects or you know, it might be fishing effects on the food web, on the ecosystem. So there are these different layers. And so coming back to the um, this question about how to navigate complex systems, I, I do find it it's very helpful to have a, a starting point, um, a, a node in the web, and to work out from there and identify um, connections. And if you if you work outwards from the from any one node, you can identify all of the connections in the end. Hmm. And so since the beginning of the UBC microplastics cluster, you've worked with academics in the field who are in a number of different fields and are all members of this research group. Mm -hmm. What do you see as some of the sort of existing benefits or potential benefits of working with academics across disciplines? The the UBC microplastics cluster in particular is is a, a very interesting collection of people because they're, they cover such a broad array of disciplines, and um, they are experts uh, in their disciplines. They really are world leaders in their disciplines. And so it's quite an exciting group of people, um, and it enables us to tackle all, ast- all aspects of the microplastic problem um, at a very high level. And 
I think the yeah, it's it's the the cluster itself is very exciting because of this potential to to really work away from one's area of expertise and to connect with people um, that are doing things in quite different ways. And so to really have a holistic approach, really, to the microplastic problem. So taking it from, you know, the, the, the production phase, uh, looking at the life cycle of, of plastics, you know, taking it from the production phase all the way through to um, the, the movement of plastic uh, through the system, identifying sources in the environment, identifying effects on organisms, um, including people, and then also thinking about solutions for, you know, how we can optimize our systems to minimize these inputs, plastic inputs to the environment. I think with the, with the microplastics cluster, we, our intention is to really understand the, the life cycle of plastic and the ecosystem effects and potential solutions to the plastic problem. I think that it would be really wonderful if this is seen as the plastic is seen as almost a it's a sensible in a way of a of a much bigger problem than just plastic. There's a mm -hmm. lot of other human impacts in the ocean, uh, in the land, in the atmosphere. There are other pollutants. Uh, there's you know there's climate change. Um, there's various other things that are going on that are extremely important, and the I think that if we use the, the sort of integrated approach to studying the plastic problem, it would be ideal if that can be applied more broadly to other problems as well. So we need to we need to keep in mind we need to remember that plastic the plastic problem does not occur in isolation, and that we need to be linking it back to other human induced pressures on our systems. Um, because it, it again, it comes to it comes back to integrated effects. So um, it could be um, and will be uh, the case that you know the, the plastic problem will be mediated by other stresses in the environment. So, what do you think is the key to studying problems that are this vast and and involve this many different layers and stressors and considerations? Um, what kind of approach is needed? from a collaborative perspective to drive the research forward and take the research out of the universities and drive better policies and practices? It's a good question. <clears throat> so I think these, the, the microplastic problem um, is one that could seem maybe overwhelming because it has such vast scales, um, but when, um, I don't think that we should we should think about not being able to to deal with this. I think we we have to approach it from different directions, and it requires uh, all levels of action. So it requires academic research for sure, um, and that can be from local to global scales, uh, and that could be research on effects at a local scale to uh, research on distributions at a global scale and um, research into policies that can um, be developed to reduce the uh, production and use of plastic and, and, and measures to limit their introduction to the environment. So there are, there are these many different um, scales. But I think that it absolutely needs to uh, go beyond the, uh, 
be just research. I mean, we and and obviously policy um, does that to a large extent because uh, just just by the nature of, of of what it is. But we also need to engage with uh, people outside of academia, um, in, in industry, uh, NGOs, and members of the public. So um, doing so on on different scales because I think. Um, everything we do makes a difference. And so it could be just, you know, reaching people to educate on plastic use in the, in the home. Um, um, that makes a difference as well as, you know, working with industry to have different sort of manufacturing processes that decrease uh, plastic production or mm. whether it's, you know, waste, waste management, like how we deal with waste. Um, and, um, and limit the, the the introduction of plastic to our system. So definitely, we need a multi-scalar approach um, that is both in in uh, in space and also with the um, uh, basically stakeholders that we would be engaging with. And what does it mean to be doing this work in British Columbia in particular? I feel that British Columbia is a place where you uh, we have a, an amazing beautiful natural environment here and I, I feel as though we we there's a lot of passionate people here uh, uh, about the environment so people who really care about uh, the environmental health and and so it's a place where you can there can really be action um, there are people across all sectors of society who are interested in um, looking after this place and so that makes it a it's a it's an exciting place to work for that reason because it feels like change is actually possible. So, in BC, I would say that we, you know we have the potential to be leaders in in solutions to to problems. From a from a research perspective, uh, I think in British Columbia we have opportunity to um, research the effect of plastics on on a, on I would say model systems. A lot of model systems. That's um, mm. you know that could be. Um, we talked a lot about we talked a lot about herring and herring is uh, the, the pelagic food web and the role of herring is a, is a is something that's it's very important and it's a it's a model system that can be um, where information gained from that system is applicable to many other parts of the world as well. So mm. I suppose in in some ways we when we, when we're thinking about the work that we do, it's important to. Um, Try and put it in a in a in a context that makes it uh, suitable or relevant to people in other parts of the world. And um, you know, we do want to have impact with our our research. We do want it to be meaningful. And so sometimes that means not thinking about like particular species, but more about um, you know the functional role of an animal, for instance, in a system rather than, or a particular ecosystem type, rather than just being, you know, very specific with, um, with, a, with a place or a particular um, species. One of the benefits, um, one of the many benefits of working in British Columbia is that um, we have uh, people across all sectors who are, are very passionate about the environment, which means that it's possible to engage, you know, with from our we work out from our our research perspective to we can engage with people who are trying to um, find solutions in the ocean. Then maybe they're doing restoration projects. We can engage with people in industry who are interested in doing things in a different way, a more environmentally friendly way. 
uh, we can engage with policymakers who are like-minded. Um, so yeah, there's a, I think it's a, it's a system where we can try some models on for size, some models of doing things and, and then be world leaders in that, in that sense of, of, of finding better ways to, to do things, um, to have sustainable systems. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the University of British Columbia Cluster for Microplastics, Health, and the Environment. This cluster brings together an interdisciplinary group of scholars aiming to support the development of informed policies regarding plastics pollution. UBC is situated on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam First Nation on the Point Grey campus and the Silks Peoples on the Okanagan campus. This episode was produced for the UBC Cluster for Microplastics Health and the Environment by Higma Strategies. I'm your host, Erica Makalak, uh, working with Creative Director Sophia Van Hees. This episode includes original music composed by Matthew Tomkinson, the 2022 Higma Artist in Residence. This score interweaves musical notes and the crunching and clicking of plastic to evoke the omnipresence of microplastics throughout our ecosystem. Matthew holds a PhD in theater studies from the University of British Columbia. 